Welcome to a beautiful day in the Swamp Ward. Down a gentle slope from here is the Cataraqui River, on its way to meet Lake Ontario. A causeway crosses the river, connecting Kingston to the east. And the hum of cars on the causeway is a sound that people who live here know well. Hot summer nights, brisk winter mornings, it's always there. In six episodes, this podcast series introduces you to the Swamp Ward through its sounds and its voices. I've spent a lot of time talking with people about this place, and I want to share with you what makes it special, what makes it ordinary, what makes it real. Swamp Ward, yeah. It was like another universe. We used to go and raise proper hell as kids in there. A lot of stuff like that went on back then. This was years and years ago. I never changed my mind about what we did at the time. I knew we were in the swamp. It was swamp. So then we got nicknamed Swamp Ward. Swamp Ward. Swamp Ward. Swamp Ward. Swamp Ward. Swamp Ward. What's a swamp water? Always swamp water. I'm Laura Murray, and you're listening to Stories of the Swamp Ward from Kingston, Ontario, Canada. How old were you, if I can ask, when the war started? That was 1939. I was uh, 17. And what do you remember about the very early days of the war? And uh, Well, it's just strange because all my na- the neighborhood were all ex-Boer War, veterans of World War One. We sat on their doorsteps and listened to them. So I, I can't tell you the atmosphere. In today's episode, we hear about experiences and effects of World War II. The first Kingston person who ever told me about their wartime experiences was my across-the-street neighbour, Claude Clement. Claude shipped out by train for the Pacific Front in August 1945. He got as far as Toronto before news of the attack on Hiroshima meant that soldiers were diverted to await further orders. At the Long Branch military base, he met Marie Lemieux, who had been working at the spy training facility known as Camp X. So, in one day, Claude escaped combat and met his wife-to-be. It always amazes me, that story. A cataclysmic global event producing such intimate and ordinary effects on the other side of the world. But then, that's a world war for you. And talking to people who remember the Second World War, it's clear how long the shadow of the First World War was. After all, the Great War was supposed to be the last one. Stuart Crawford was one of four brothers, three of whom served in the Second War. All survived. In 1942, I had to give up my paper route because uh, I joined the Air Force then. My mother was a peacenik, of course, she, she knew what war was like because her, her brothers and brothers-in-laws were all in the service. She wasn't in favor of us being in the service, but three of us were. I, I wasn't particularly willing to fight for king and country. I thought it was just a job to do. It was a job I had to do. And I think I did it well, as my brothers did. I just remember my father... You know, when I wanted to uh, join the PWOR or the Air Cadets or whatever, he would say, don't do it. He said, uh, you know, soldiers, 
You were just there to stop a bullet. That's it. As I remember them, this was First World War for him. Don't do it. Stay out of that. They were bringing up people for a call for the army. So dad decided that he'd do his civil duty and he went to volunteer at the base over there. And the fellow said, and what do you do? And dad said, I'm a sign writer. Oh, we've always got need for signs to be made on the front where the men are working. But he said, you seem like a nice young fella. Go home and keep your business going. The army really doesn't need you at this time. I remember when the troops left here, the sky was as blood red as anything. But my mother said, that was like that in the First World War. I said, you're kidding me. She said, no. The sky was blood red. I couldn't believe it. I stood down at TV Pond Barracks and looked up and it was red. So the guy upstairs must have had something to do with it. A lot of people don't believe that, but it's right. On Remembrance Day, I often think about how remembrance is, for me, impossible. It's not just that I wasn't there, it's also that I can't imagine being there. My son is 18 years old. I'm still adjusting to thinking of him as an adult. I can't imagine having him choose to go off to war or having him conscripted to go off to war. I have a hard time imagining a world without internet, looking in the paper every day to see if my son is dead, missing in action, or presumed dead. Funeral wreath was always placed on the door, whether it was black or black ribbons. I, I can't really remember, but I do recall when you saw the house with with the wreath on the outside. Somebody passed away. If you knew who lived in the house, and again the soldier was involved or an airman, you know there was a death in the family. So yes, there was. There was always that, and at the Ukrainian Hall, they would get uh, films of the war. And I recall going in and seeing this devastation, and it was uh, specifically Stalingrad at the time, and a very, very vivid picture of, I guess it would be Ukrainians at the time, Russians, and going to a, a German tank with these hand grenades and rolling under the tank. Boom. But they, uh, they stopped the Germans from the invasion by sacrificing well over a million people at the time. But these movies, everybody come out weeping because they're looking at possibly their relatives. Mike Tereski's family was Ukrainian. He was just a young kid when the war began. In the neighborhood, along our street and, and up Charles Street, you had the Irish, the Ukrainian, you had the Canadians. Boy, they were rare. And French Canadians, and English, and British, and uh, Czechoslovaks. And so it was, was quite a mix. At our house, Mom was an outgoing person, and uncles enlisted, they were in. Saskatchewan or Windsor, Thunder Bay, Kingston being a marshalling area, they'd always come through and then head out to overseas or wherever they were going. And the outer station, being the railroad station, was on the way. So we'd see all this movement of people and 
and soldiers. It's uh, an interesting time. So yes, the Canadian emblem, I guess, got uh, got emblazoned there somehow through the soldiers. You said before that there weren't many Canadians on, in the neighborhood. They were people from different places. What would the word Canadian have meant to you at the time? It didn't mean much until we got to the victory drives during the war. But as soon as uh, we were doing victory drives, and this was at school, it involved uh, singing our national anthem at the time. And I recall sitting there and, and singing Maple Leaf Forever. And it became quite a Canadian thing because we were supporting the troops to do something in what it was. But we would be asked as part of the drive, not just for the money, we were asked to go and pick milk pods, milkweed pods, and they were gathered, we'd bring a big bag of these things, everybody did, that could, and uh, bring them in. They were used for life preservers. While little Mike was getting used to the idea of being Canadian, Kingston was becoming a boomtown. Well, sure, it made work. That's all wars do. Made work. Eight bombs and that's it. Noon and plant working full three shifts of the overtime. I like, sure. That's all war does. If they want. Someone said if you get a depression, you can, you can be pretty well figure out the war coming. And you get out of the depression, all right, you're rich. <laughs> yeah. The tannery was in full production, making leather for boots. The woolen mill was making army blankets and khaki for uniforms. And new industry developed away from the inner harbor. In 1939, Alcan opened a massive sheet rolling plant northwest of town, and soon a large tract of housing was constructed next to it. The official name of that neighborhood is King's Court, but a lot of people even today call it wartime. Short for wartime housing, but weirdly resonant. The airport was up there too, a training ground for pilots from around the Commonwealth. And this produced the bizarre situation that while many Kingston boys were abroad, some Kingston girls had a pretty nice time. They got jobs and made money, and they went to dances. They would dance every night. And even at the armories on uh, Montreal, there used to be dances there too. Yes, that was really fun. They were all really nice guys. They have a special bus at the corner uh, where the Princess Street and clergy, the bus used to pick us up there. Pick up all the girls, take us out to the dances, and then be at, there at the end of the dance and bring you back. What did the war mean to you as a, a, a young woman just finishing school, just starting work? Uh, the boys. <laughs> we met a lot of, uh, from the Fleet Air Arm, and, the, and so you know, we sort of had open house there for them, cooking them liver and onions and bacon and eggs for them. And two of my sisters married boys from the Fleet Air Arm. Uh, my first dance, the Y organized buses to go out and take girls out to the dances. And so my my 16th birthday, I was allowed to go. One of the boys in the orchestra used to come to our place. He was one of the, you know, the RAF servicing the airplanes. But yeah, he used to come 
he and um, there were five of them, I think, used to come, and he played the piano. And there was one fellow with them, so he was going to sing a song, and we thought, oh, you know, just be a song. And he sang, Trees. I think that I shall never see a poem lovely as a tree. Okay. <laughs> but it has a beautiful voice. Oh, a lovely voice. So we were all amazed at, uh, at how this fellow could sing. Garth Amy's parents got married just before the war. My mother and father were married at uh, Chalmers Church in Kingston. I think my mother was like 17. My dad was like 22 or 23. And he went overseas after two weeks later for four years. My father was sending money home to her to kind of make her happy during the war. But what he didn't realize that she was saving up all the money and she would go to Abramski's downtown and she would buy a kitchen set and she bought a bedroom set. And uh, she had uh, put together a whole apartment full of furniture and that. So he had nothing to worry about when he came back. All he had to worry about was, uh, was finding a job. She would send a box to him and it would have cigarettes and hot chocolate and coffee and that. And my father would share it with all the guys. So he, she sent a picture overseas and uh, they all adored her because she was sending this stuff over and they would all kiss her goodnight before they went to bed because she was kind of taking care of them. And uh, that's a story that my dad used to tell all the time. I do know that my father saw uh, a psychiatrist here in Kingston because he was an avid hunter when he was young. And when he came back, he had trouble walking on grass because uh, he'd seen a lot of his friends blown up with mines. And so he had to be hypnotized to get so he could walk on grass again so he could do what he liked, which was hunting. He really wouldn't share too much. However, when I watched it on television, he'd always come in and he'd say, I was there, I was here, I remember that. He would give me a little bit and then he would slide upstairs and I would watch the show myself. But he was in England, came into Normandy a few days later and, uh, you know, he, he would tell me the, the good parts. You know, he'd say he was in Paris and he was in, you know, he was in Holland and, you know, he, he would tell me the those, those good, better parts. And, he, you know, he's one of these kids from a small town that ends up going overseas and seeing stuff that he never thought he would and then, you know, starting a life. And my mother always said, you know, I never knew if he was coming back, you know, because nobody knew what the outcome of the war was going to be. It was very up in the air as who was going to win that war. In the end, it was the Allies. And in May 1945, Kingstonians joined in the celebration of VE Day. So I worked upstairs in the shipping room, white shirt, nice clean clothes, so I had a nice job. I wasn't working, I'd be looking out the window, watching people go into the beer store. When the war was over, we just, I can remember, looking out the window, someone said the war was over, jumping out, going up the street there, Princess and Wellington, getting on the back of the cars there, and everybody honking their horn. I can just remember that as if yesterday. The war was over. Then the happiness came at VE Day, big 
parade down Princess Street and me in Ukrainian costume and, and uh, Mr. Golka had a dump truck. He had converted the back of the dump truck with a platform on it, decorated all up as were the other trucks. Mom was in front of the truck in her Ukrainian costume. Here we are, the, a record player. Think about this now. And people dancing on this platform, the thing bobbing up and down. And it was a gay time. So we were parading down Princess Street. Everybody who was there remembers VE Day. But the social solidarity of wartime was sometimes temporary, and the echoes of war deaths and war experiences were felt in Kingston for years afterwards. You got beat up if you, uh, if you were a hunk. You got beat up. And in kind, you beat up the other guy for beating you up. So is it like uh, if you decided to sign up for the army, you suddenly counted as Canadian and you wouldn't be called Bohunk anymore? Essentially, yeah. And that, uh, that's right. Because after the war, the label got pinned back on very quickly. After the war. My brother, he had done his tour. He could have come home as an instructor. He signed up and they sent him training for the Pathfinder Squadron, and on his seventh mission, he was shot down over Berlin and killed. My mother was never right. I would hear my mother in the night crying. Doug was the oldest, and he had uh, just finished high school. He was a six-foot-three. They turned him down in Kingston. They said he was too tall. He had a friend that worked in the recruiting office in Ottawa, he phoned Doug one day and said, come down quick. He said, I'm working in here for the day, and I'll sign you up. But, uh, yeah, no, my, my mother was never the same. Never. So you knew your grandmother? Oh, very well. She was a war widow, and she kind of wore that uh, that mantle, you know, and that was, uh, and that's how she referred to herself. Um, it sort of dominated her life. I mean, she was widowed when she was 30. You know, I had a very hard time for quite a few years with my, you know, my mother was seven, I think, at the time and raised her herself. And I don't think it was very happy. For, for instance, her mother, would, certainly in those days, was always sad. I remember, she would be told by her aunts, like, don't ask about your father. It upsets your mother too much. So I think she grew up with a lot of rules about don't talk about this, don't mention that, don't ask, you know. When we were kids, we used to hang out down around the tracks there and there were old winos. A lot of them were in the war, and then they'd come back. But that was a very bad time for people. That war, you know, changed a lot of men, changed their whole life. A lot of them would probably get into the drink and stuff like that to block out a lot of stuff. But they were good people, and they used to tell us stories and things like that. And then there was a, there was a different type of uh, post-traumatic stress was the people that didn't go overseas, who felt the guilt of not going over and not taking part. And, you know, they, they probably had physical disabilities and they couldn't go. And But that wears on people, you know, where somebody else comes back and somebody doesn't go and people are going like, well, you know, if you had gone, you know, you would have given the ultimate sacrifice and that. In the general understanding, the post-war period is thought to be a boom time, 
And indeed, in general, people picked up the pieces, and industries and cities grew. There were new opportunities for many. But for established industrial areas like the Swamp Ward, downtowns, working-class neighborhoods, it wasn't easy. Factories reduced production. The new jobs were often elsewhere. Whether they stayed or left, people had to rebuild their jobs, their relationships, their bodies, their hearts. And each veteran, each family, each street had to do it their own way. So there are the two jobs. I had a paper route, and I was in the Air Force. I, I'm I'm not one who wants to. I, I maybe I'm different, but I came on the boat home. Half of Kingston was on the boat, including cousins and friends from high school. And my cousin said, "Are you coming home with me on the train?" I said, "I don't want to be in that big reception at the you know everybody cheering and that wasn't my style." I thought I'd rather come home alone. So I said, I'll stay in Montreal and visit cousins and uncles, and, and I'll come home the next day. Tell my mother I'll be home the next day. So when I walked in the door, I, there was no emotion, and I thought it was just, I thought my mother did it well. She didn't say anything. I was greeted as if I would be coming home on leave, and no, no, uh, no special greeting, except she said to me, I think you better take your uniform off. I said, why? You have to do the paper route. Your brother's sick. <laughs> so I took the uniform off, grabbed the paper bag and the papers, and started down the end of Ordnance Street. It took me about two hours to do the damn paper route, because everybody wanted to talk. So that was my homecoming. so much for listening to Stories of the Swamp Ward from Kingston, Ontario, Canada. Stories of the Swamp Ward is produced by me, Laura Murray, with audio production and story consulting by the patient and fabulous Phil Lichty. Jeff Elliott did the final mixing and mastering. Music is by Sam Allison. Today you heard the voices of Garth Amy, Kevin Blaney, Stuart Crawford, Bob Frey, Charlie Forty, Lorraine Good, Isabel Gordon, Bill Hackett, Bob Martin, Ken Matthews, Mark Shaw, and Mike Tereski. Interviews were conducted by me, Laura Murray, Scott Rutherford, and Lauren Luchensky. Other assistants along the way came from Ronan Goldfarb, Tash Carroll, Justine Hobbs, Yanni Pantis, and Ella Mackay Singh. What we didn't learn from real live people, we learned from the Queen's University Archives and the Kingston Frontenac Public Library. Thanks so, so, so much to Queen's University and the City of Kingston Heritage Fund for financial support. And thanks to the Friends of Kingston Inner Harbour and CFRC, Queen's Campus Radio 101.9, our partners in these podcasts. If you want to know more about this spot of the world, check out swampwardhistory.com, the website of the Swampward and Inner Harbour History Project. There's even a blog post just for this episode at swampwardhistory.com slash thewarandafter. Or find us on Twitter at SWEEP, that's the acronym for Swamp Ward and Inner Harbor History Project, or on Facebook.
You're wondering about the next episode, right? Well, I kind of resisted doing a whole episode about one supermarket. But people's choice, it turns out there's a lot to say about Bennett's, and it's pretty interesting too. The people you would meet in that store, wow. It was, uh, it was kind of like the city hall of our neighborhood. I think you'll like it. 